Hi there, friends, and welcome to this episode of Burn Your Draft, the podcast exploring the Reed Senior thesis process and experience. I'm your host, Amelie Andreas, and today it is my pleasure to introduce you to our very first linguistics major on the podcast, Max Tieford. Max's thesis goes all the way full circle back to the very first experience we share together as Reedies, the Hume Conference. Take it away, Max. My name is Max Tieford. Um, I am originally from San Luis Obispo, California. I am a recently graduated linguistics major, um, and I use they and he pronouns. And I'm very happy to be here today. And what is the name of your thesis? Oh, yeah. Um, The title, the catchy title that I came up with at the very last minute was Just Sayings. Social Justice and Discursive Practice in a Hume 110 Conference. I like it. Thanks. Yeah. And I, because it, you know, it was linguistics. So you're saying things. Mm-hmm. And then the students were pursuing social justice. So I thought it would be cute to say just saying with an S because the things that they're saying are supposedly just. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully. Uh, it's pretty corny, but uh, I was, I was pretty proud of that pun. And it's, you know, there's a long precedent in linguistics of um, crappy puns like that. So. Oh, yeah. No kidding. <laughs> Yeah, you're actually our first linguistics major to come on the podcast. Yeah, I'm proud. I hope I I hope I do us justice. Do you mind giving us like a little background on like the linguistics major and like what linguistics looks at it looks like at Reed? Um, if, because you're like our first linguistics major ever. Yeah. Um. So I first got into the major for very I think different reasons than those for which the linguistics department teaches here. So like I was teaching English before Reed. And then I was mm. like, oh, I can learn to do this better by learning about linguistics. And then I got here and they were like, yeah, that's something that some people do. But the people, the professors at Reed are in a very different, like more academic mm-hmm. sort of science-y, social science-y approach to language. Mm-hmm. And so that can look like, like there's one professor, Samir, who studies sounds and like in a, in a very controlled like lab environment, how sounds are produced how speakers process and articulate sounds, that sort of stuff. Um, And then Matt, who is the head of the department this year, teaches morphosyntax, the way that different languages put together bits of words and words um, to make make phrases, to make sentences, and as well as Austronesian languages. Mm -hmm. And then lastly, there's Kara, who was my advisor, who's a sociolinguist, who basically studies how do speakers use certain linguistic you know, certain words, certain sounds Mm -hmm. and stuff in different contexts. Um, And how does that interact with like bigger picture social science? And so none of that obviously is what I came here to study, Um, but it sort of opened up my world because it's Mm -hmm. this whole, you know, it's a discipline that you don't really, that at least I wasn't aware existed before Mm -hmm. coming to college. And it's the three things that the professors teach are very different. And so it allowed just in this one small department, which is very small, just three professors, you can cover quite a bit of ground. And I think that that yields a lot of interesting and diverse linguistics majors. So the department is filled with people from that want to do very different things with it Mm -hmm. um, and want to apply it in very different ways and come from very different backgrounds. And that's, I think, what makes it so good. I gave the department itself an acknowledgement in my thesis because it's (laughs) such a good place and all the professors are so amazing. So that's why that's my elevator pitch on read linguistics. I love it. I think that's definitely a great way to, to, to start off, hopefully a long legacy of linguistics majors on the podcast. I hope so. Yeah, I can, I can try to encourage them um, to get on here. 
I'll, I'll let them know. I love it. Please do. Yeah. Please do. So you started off coming into linguistics for this very like practical reason that you were interested in like teaching language. And then you came here and you found that maybe things were a little bit more, more academic. Yeah. Like you said, morphosyntax. I didn't even know what that word meant until you explained it. Yeah. Neither did I. (laughs) How did your thesis kind of fit on this spectrum of like practical to super hyper academic? Is it like somewhere in between? leaning more in one direction than the other? That's that's a really good question because I think one thing that was on my mind going into this is the like how esoteric and weird the super academic mm-hmm. stuff is. Um, and like, for instance, for a while, an interest of mine was um, like language revitalization and mm. part of that being morphosyntax. And so I got um, a fellowship to go to the South of Mexico in Oaxaca in winter of 2019. Mm-hmm. Um, and study and document Mixtec, like a, a dialect of Mixtec mm-hmm. there, um, which is an indigenous language. And I was like, okay, yeah, this is gonna be my thesis. Cool. There's all these, you know, crazy pieces of, of language, these these weird syntactic, these weird sentence constructions. Um, and I'm gonna take it mm-hmm. upon myself to like show this to the world and document and explain what's happening here. And then over the next few years, I was like, wait a second, that like what does that really do? it's you know it's it's great for like the few linguists that are here and this is not by no means me trying to bash linguists in general but I think the field has a problem of very like internal focus Mm -hmm. um and of like not seeing itself as like a political a socially situated Mm -hmm. field um and so it's sort of like a lot of linguists are able to remove themselves from well think that they're removing themselves from the outside world in order to like get the pure study of like pure language. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, um, and I sort of um, started to take issue with that during, I guess, what was the spring of my junior year technically. Um, and so then when I qualed, I wrote a qual about speech at Reed and like social difference between students at Reed and was like, Hey, this is sort of fun. And then when I came to writing my thesis proposals, everything I suggested was, language in the world, um, language as part of the social and political landscape. And that's, that's not to bash the, the syntax kids, the phonetics kids. Um, I'm, I'm a hundred percent there for it, but for me, it just sort of, it fell out as, um, something that I was interested in within the field. Um, and then, yeah. And then, so I ended up getting assigned Kara, um, who again is a sociolinguist, um, of the department as my thesis advisor. And then it all kind of went from there. That's definitely such an awesome transition. And, and it shows that you really like took the time to reflect and think about, is this what I actually want to be doing? So what was your day-to-day like? Were you sitting in, in a lot of Hume conferences or making recordings or doing like a lot of hitting the books in the library? Um, there was, I guess, some some of all of those. I only sat in on five total sessions of a single Hume conference. Mm. So I wasn't there like every day, the time yeah. constraint. I mean, I was like, it was basically a class that I had to attend. So that mm-hmm. the time constraint got bad, um, especially because Hume is what, three hours a week. So no kidding. Yeah. That was tough. Yeah. But like the first semester was um, a lot of like literature and yeah, books and stuff in the library and my IRB process. Um, and then once I got approval from the IRB, took, yeah, five, five consecutive sessions of a single conference and sat in, I'd come to class before everyone else and, um, set up recorders all around the room and then like 
greet everybody and try to be invisible for the duration of conference and then stay after and wrap up and then process them later. So that was the the day-to-day for the first semester. And then I had the summer in which I just did not think about it at all, which was- a, As you should. Yeah, I mean, I, I I felt like it was good to get the break. Three-month mm-hmm. break was a bit much. Like mm-hmm. I got, you know, like by the end of the summer, somebody would ask me like, hey, what's your thesis about? And I'd be like, oh God, I don't know. <laughs> I completely don't forgot. Me. Yeah, and then the second semester was just an all-out sprint of writing. I mean, it was mm-hmm. one chapter in the first semester and then four chapters in the second. Wow. Um, so very, very imbalanced there. I, I have opinions about, that imbalance. I think it should be <laughs> more balanced, but whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah. So by second semester, I was just like on my computer with the annotated recordings, like looking at conversation and just um, pumping out words. Yeah. In the library for many hours a day. Yeah. What was it like being back in a Hume conference? You know, it would have been like a, a few years now since you've been in, in that kind of like environment, right? Is it very different from what you remember your Hume conferences being like? So, yeah, I mean, the, the differences were striking. The, the commonalities, though, were kind of fun. Mm-hmm. Where, like, I forgot, you know, like, I have this image in my brain of, like, what my Hume conference was like and what Hume was like. Mm-hmm. And then to be in a conference and, you know, somebody's like, I think that the author means this. And like, I think that the author actually meant this. And it's, like, <laughs> all these works that, like, I, I read in the class. I was doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. And it's just, I don't know, it was sort of, uh, I don't want to say, like, cute because that's like almost condescending, but it mm-hmm. was like endearing. And it was Nostalgic. like, okay, cool. This is, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But at the same time, they were very, like the conference I studied was a lot more insightful, progressive mm-hmm. than my conference. That's good to hear. Um, and so that's, I mean, those are, that's basically the core of my findings and what I ended up, oh. how I ended up analyzing the conference, but it was very like engaged and critical and conversational to a point that my conference just wow. never got to. And I mean, mine was very, I was just quiet and mm-hmm. sort of, I mean, it was, it was, it was still a fun time, but it was not like the magical thing that they, you know, make it out to be on the, it, it really varies a lot from conference to conference is what I've heard. It's kind of like a totally a role of the, the, the dice in terms of the like group chemistry and the professor and yeah. all of those coming together to make the perfect magical quintessential human conference. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think I, I, I would feel wrong to characterize it as like unanimous or like a big group of friends or something. Um, I think there was actually quite a bit of division and quite a bit of like mm-hmm. problematic divides within the conference. But I think it was more that like everyone was just on board to a certain extent. Mm. You'd have one student just like say something that was pretty maybe problematic but just like put put it out there and it would be and it, it, not a perhaps not an okay <laughs> thing to say at all but it would be responded to by students with in an involved and like mm-hmm. engaged way um and that's just something i mean my hume conference was just quiet and so that was that was something that was you know, a pretty striking contrast between mine and theirs. Yeah. Did you have any like unexpected challenges when you were doing this? I mean, you say people, you're saying that people sometimes might say like controversial things or like, how did you deal with those type of situations or other challenges or conflicts that might've arrived? So that, that was sort of the core, like the main, the main problem was what you just described. So like in my first chapter in the first semester, before I had recorded, I wrote out this big Basically, my I had hypothesized that there's this thing that I'm sure you're aware of that I've been made made aware of and have done research on with Kara outside of class 
mm-hmm. about like Reed and like an academic or elitist way of speaking. Mm-hmm. And so that like Reedies will use big words and maybe like one kid in class is like, well, huh, ontology. And everyone's like, <laughs> oh, wow, like they're so smart. And like, it's like this exclusionary academic intellectual way of speaking. Yeah. And so that in itself was on my mind. And also the ways that that is more than likely a whiteness and a Mm -hmm. maleness um, and a Westernness and all these other intersecting big social systems Mm -hmm. are are implicated in that. And so I had hypothesized that if I study this conference, if I go into this conference and record them, what I'm going to find is that as a group, they have a shared pursuit Mm -hmm. of this academic thing. And somebody will say, oh, I think the author was talking about a you know, a way of thinking. And somebody was like, actually, the word you want is epistemology, Hmm. you know, and sort of in that, in those moments, in their conversation with one another can sort of move toward this like academic intellectual thing, which because it's linked to these bigger systems of power Mm. is itself problematic. And I think should be interrogated if not thrown out. Uh So that was like my hypothesis. And I was very self-assured. And then I just, I was listening through my recordings at the start of the semester. And I think I came into Kara's office one day and I was like, Kara, they are not doing this. I was like, I thought I was going to find it. I thought it was going to be foregrounded in their conversations. I mean, I can't say that they're not doing it, mm-hmm. but I, I thought it was going to be like the most prominent thing. And I was like, it seems like the most prominent thing in this conference is almost the opposite. Interrogating injustice and addressing inequality within the conference and within conversation. Mm-hmm. I was like, it almost seems like that is their main goal. And this discriminatory academic thing is not going on at all. Kara was like, cool, write it up. <laughs> and, and so it was sort of, you know, and I, I think I was, I was talking to one of my readers one time and she asked me how it was going. And I was like, you know, it's, there's some sick irony because I wanted them, not wanted, but was expecting them mm-hmm. to be discriminatory and to be pursuing this problematic academic standard. Mm-hmm. And then they didn't. And I'm like, come on, I want you to be problematic so that I can have something to talk about. Obviously, I don't want, I don't actually want students to be doing that. It's not a, not a, not a good thing, not a just thing at all. Mm -hmm. But there was sort of this, you know, I thought it would be this, this condemnation of, of Reed Conference and of Reedy's discriminatory speech. And this conference in particular, that was not at the top of my findings. Mm -hmm. Um, Students reported that happening. And I can say almost with certainty, given just the the depth of these problems that that is still going on mm-hmm. every day in almost every interaction at Reed, it just wasn't at the top of what I saw. Um, and so I had to sort of just correct course and say, nope, these students are doing something different. And maybe they're even aware of the background that led me to oh. hypothesize, you know, like th- th- they're not, they're not like, well, actually, on you know, in, according to this scholar, st- standard language ideology or whatever, they they're mm-hmm. not like uh, trying to embody that problematic academia persona. Yeah, yeah, but they're at least aware that like speech forms which are associated with white people mm-hmm. are privileged, something like that. They're aware of that, and they're you know within uh, within a conversation, uh, marginalized people are um, th- their contributions are devalued in conversations and things like that, and it seems like students are aware of those things in the conference that I study, at least some students, I can't say all, obviously, Mm -hmm. but a strong number of them are such that there just wasn't this, this discriminatory pattern that I thought would be going on. 
at least not prominent. Yeah, that is so fascinating. And it's like, I feel like it's very rare to be pleasantly surprised in academia. So that is very exciting to hear about. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned your outcome is that you're seeing that these students are like being a lot more conscious, maybe even aware of this problematic academic persona that you were talking about and like actively trying to avoid it, pushing Hume hopefully in a a good direction. But then also this idea that we might have like some other Hume conferences that aren't showing this like conscious linguistic practice that you've been talking about. Is there any like plans to take your findings and maybe like present them to the Hume Hume 110 board or something or or at least, you know, put it in front of them and say like, hey, this is what's going on. Um, I, I thought about something like that. My, one of my worries was that they would see this and mm-hmm. uh, take- To encourage? Yeah, and take it to mean <laughs> that Hume 110 students are, acti- are just, and Hume 110 students are able to think critically mm-hmm. and like pursue social justice. Cause that, that, was, that was like, I think verbatim, the, what I argued this group was doing was not, not necessarily mm-hmm. the linguistic side and the academic persona, but they were pursuing social justice um, through their mm-hmm. speech. And my worry is that the Human 10 faculty committee would see this and be like, oh, great. Like our job's working. They're totally all being really just in class. Mm-hmm. Whereas students that I interviewed from this conference were like, hey, it feels like our conference is an exception and not a rule. And when I talk to my friends, mm-hmm. they are spending the whole conference debating whether it's okay for white people to say the n-word for instance I'm like okay so clearly there's a big discrepancy here yeah yeah a lot of other conferences if not all of them are are not doing the same things that these that these mm-hmm. students were and i think also some of it came down to the role of the instructor who was pretty like was kind of on the ground of the students mm-hmm. participating in these questions in the same way as they were um which definitely helped so i guess to address the question of what, like, you know, presenting it to the Hume faculty, I'm not sure how it would go over because it could either be like appropriated as a, a, a celebration of how great Hume students are, which would be horrible, or it could be seen as like me going after all the Hume professors and being like, y'all need to catch up to this conference, mm-hmm. which also feels like it wouldn't really go over well. So I guess I, ha- I don't have any such plans. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't say. There was a Hume faculty member on my orals board. Um, and so I hope at least something got through. Are you planning on like continuing in this direction after Reed, completely pivoting, a kind of like, I don't know yet? I think classrooms and students will continue to be a big part of my life. Mm-hmm. Definitely no plans for like grad school for sociolinguistics or anything, at least as of now. Mm-hmm. But I think something more toward like a teaching credential or a master's of pedagogy or something Mm -hmm. like that could be cool. But definitely like the, I guess my personal motives in writing this thesis have not gone away. Mm -hmm. And I think the things that were important in writing it will continue to be important. Yeah. So kind of coming back a little bit to, to that idea, which got you started in linguistics of like teaching English. And now you've had this whole, the academia experience, you can take that all and, and just run a really awesome switched on classroom yeah that's that's the hope and I I think also a big finding which which should have been apparent from the very beginning the Hume faculty thinks that a very specific thing is going on and they they write it out on paper and it's on the website Mm -hmm. and they're like in class students are doing x y and z um and this conference 
mm-hmm. while they weren't necessarily not doing those things, kind of were like, hey, we can do our own thing and screw the Hume faculty for, for pu- imposing all this stuff on us. Yeah. We disagree with it. What mm-hmm. can we work out between ourselves and pursue ourselves? And so, and I sort of suggested at the end, like, hey, educators, especially professors, it's not always in your hands. The students mm-hmm. hold a lot of power in determining what they're going to be doing. Um, and so I think as I look forward to a career, I mean, most likely teaching something at this point, that that will can continue to be made apparent um, and that I'll, you know, be able to place more trust in students to have autonomy and, and to do what they see fit. Yeah, I think that's definitely like, one of the most wonderful things about the legacy of human one at read is like the tendency of students to to question and think critically not because of the curriculum and the institution and faculty but oftentimes in spite of it exactly yeah usually to finish off these interviews i'll ask someone to like give advice to thesis students or maybe just someone starting out on their read journey but i was wondering if because of like the nature of your thesis you could give like, what would be your one piece of advice to someone who's starting out in intro Hume specifically? One thing that would, uh, that stands out to me is to like, look at the history of Hume protests and Hume syllabus and like the course itself, more so than any other class that one is in. I definitely didn't do that. I sort of just took it as like, oh, here's like the course that everyone takes. And yeah, I got some changes recently, but those are okay. And it's probably good. Let's just do it. Um, and didn't sort of situate it within the fact that it's like always been changing and always been subject to debate. Mm-hmm. And so to, to know those things and also to recognize, like recognize the reasons why people are, are argued for change of the syllabus and are still critiquing the syllabus rather than just like, you know, it can often be presented as like, oh yeah, like in the past, some students wanted to make some changes. So we made some changes. It's like, no, like, there's a lot more going on than that. And so to understand the course that you're in, how it came to be where it is and where it could go in the future. Um, and then in terms of like, I, I, I would feel, I'd feel wrong prescribing any sort of just speech practice to, to use uh, in Hume, <laughs> but I feel like to, to let those come from the students themselves and to like trust your conference, mm-hmm. to trust your peers and probably not pay a ton of regard to a professor that, is trying to make you use the word ontology or something. I don't know. <laughs> to see the conference as a community, which it is not necessarily a community, but can be one. Thank you so much, Max, for joining us on this episode of Burn Your Draft. Hopefully your thesis and maybe this podcast episode can help inspire the next generation of readies to speak justly and hopefully be wonderful, wonderful Hume Conference participants. And thank you as well to all of our listeners who took the time to tune into this episode. I hope you'll join us again to hear from more alumni and students about what it means to burn your draft. If you liked this episode, be sure to subscribe, check out our Twitter and Facebook pages, and rate us on Apple Podcasts. The views, information, or opinions expressed on this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Reed College. Burn Your Draft is a production of Reed College and the Center for Life Beyond Reed, created jointly by students, alumni, and staff. This episode was produced and engineered by me, Reed College student Amelie Andreas. Our executive producer is Seth Paskin, class of 1990, with technical advising from staff member Joe Janaga.
Our project manager is Nate Martin, staff member in Class of 2016. Music by Jack Salvucci, Class of 2020, and podcast start by alumni Henry Gotchlik and Lillian Pham. This podcast was made possible by a gift from Seth Paskin.